Well, if you uh, have a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Uh, we uh, once again are going to be in Luke's Gospel. I think I'm right in saying this is week 74 uh, of our series, working our way uh, slowly but surely through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus while he's here on earth. Now, one of the big themes that uh, I think we keep coming up against in the book of Luke is the whole theme of generosity. Uh, And one of the things that uh, I've been at pains to try and show you is that generosity is actually way more than just giving away your money. Uh, Generosity is to penetrate absolutely every area of your life. This be a generosity of spirit, a generosity of heart, a generosity in relationships, an emotional generosity. We're to be generous with our time, we're to be generous with our gifts, we're to be generous with our home, with our stuff. We can be generous with encouragement, believing the best about other people, and with forgiveness. There are all sorts of different ways that we can be generous. But of course, In order to be thoroughly generous, it also means being generous with our money. And this week, uh, we arrive in a passage, uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, where it's one of the most famous uh, accounts, famous places in the Bible, where Jesus talks about being generous with our money. As I've said, we're going to be in Luke 18, if you want to follow along. It's the conversation that Jesus has with a guy who, down through the centuries, has become known as the rich young ruler. Uh, Just so you know where we're going with this, uh, as we work our way uh, slowly through this passage, we are going to be confronted, kind of face-on, with the danger of money. Now, just to say that there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. Used well, it is a tremendous blessing. But at the same time, money does have a tendency to blind you to how important it is to you. It can very easily distract you from what is of most importance in life. It can delude you into thinking that if you have it, then you're safe and secure. It has the ability to distort your understanding of yourself. If you have lots of money, it can kind of puff you up and make you proud and think that you've arrived. And if you have little or no money, you can wrongly assume that you are worth nothing. And so this morning, more than anything else, I want to try and serve you well by helping you escape from the power of money. But for that to happen, you have to see it for what it really is. You have to wake up to the potential danger of money. And so I'm going to need some help from God in all of this. And before getting into the passage, I want to pray and invite God to come and challenge us on this subject. Is that right with you? Yeah, a few grunts of affirmation, in which case I will pray. If you said no, I'm not quite sure what I'd have done, but you said yes, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are more passionately after our joy even than we are, uh, because you're determined to bless us and do us good. Uh, You're not afraid to challenge us and confront us, convict us and face us up to the reality of what's going on deep inside our own hearts. And, And so, Father, we say we want to 
learn to see things as you see them. We want to receive your word, even when it's hard and challenging to us, we want to receive it with courage and with faith. Uh, and even as we've just sung, we're here for you. We want to hear your word and be changed by it. Uh, would you do surgery on us today? Uh, would you confront us where we've got things wrong, where we're trapped and can't get free? Would you bring freedom to us so we'd experience the goodness of you more and more? Amen. Okay, Luke 18. Got to pick it up in verse 18. Certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. The guy replied, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Just pause there. Now, if you've been paying attention the last few weeks, hopefully you have, you're going to be wondering at this point, what on earth is going on here? You see, almost immediately before this passage, if you remember, Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And if you recall, the Pharisee prays a bit like this. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I obey all of your commandments. In other words, he was pretty confident that he could inherit eternal life merely through obeying God's laws. The other person in the story uh, is a tax collector. And if you recall, all he does is kind of beat his chest and cries out at the top of his voice, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, It's the tax collector who simply asks for forgiveness and mercy, who goes home saved, and it was the Pharisee who thought that he could obey the Ten Commandments and get eternal life that way. He went home not saved. It's another one of those recurring themes in Luke's Gospel. Jesus has said over and over and over and over again, you cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot get relationship with God merely through your good works. Nobody can do that. It's absolutely impossible. So do you see how shocking today's passage is? This man comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, see the Ten Commandments, simply obey them. Implication is, that's how you find eternal life. It's like, what's going on here? You're kind of thinking, here's what Jesus should have said. If if he's going to be consistent with everything he teaches elsewhere, with everything else that's written in the New Testament, why didn't he say, oh, you want eternal life? Well, I've come to die for your sins. I have come to go to the cross and pay a ransom to take the penalty that you deserve. If you believe in me, then you'll have eternal life. Why didn't Jesus say that? Because he's brilliant. That's why. Read the Gospels, funnily enough. Read the Gospels and you'll see how Jesus never treats anybody quite the same. It's as though he has the insight, has the discernment to see beneath the surface what's really going on in people's hearts. That's what we're going to see. It's always the same Gospel, always the same good news, but Jesus never approaches it the same way. Always deals with the root issues. And so I think the reason he doesn't say, I've come to die for your sins. I'm your saviour. Please, just believe in me, 
is because it would have been incomprehensible to this young man. Why? Because like almost everybody else around us today, this guy doesn't think he actually has a problem. If Jesus had said, I came to die for your sins to rescue you, I reckon the guy would have responded like he does in verse 21. All these laws I've kept. In other words, I don't need rescuing. I'm a good person. It's a journalist called Polly Toynbee. Uh, she writes for the Guardian newspaper. Uh, I think it's fair to say she doesn't like Christianity one bit, and very often she kind of spouts off about it. And there's this one piece that she wrote that I reckon is very typical of what most people around us would say today. She says, of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant told you she didn't like Christianity. The most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? You kind of see a point. She's saying, I find it offensive when you tell me that Jesus is your saviour, when you say he came to die for you. I mean, look, I didn't ask for that. I don't need that. I don't think I need to be rescued. I'm fine. I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm not perfect. Who is? I'm not so bad. I need to be rescued. That's exactly what this young man would have said. That's what I mean about Jesus being absolutely brilliant. He isn't just kind of ramming the same message down this guy's throat. He isn't kind of beating him over the head with it. But he does perceive, he does discern beneath the surface, this young man isn't completely secure. It's like on the outside, he he looks very, very confident. But why is he even there? You need to know that the question he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was in no way a burning question, a burning issue at that place and time. In Judea, everybody thought they knew the answer. Just obey the statutes of God. Avoid all sin. Everyone would have known that. Anyone could have answered that question. So the only reason this rich young ruler would have gone to Jesus and asked that question is if he knew deep down inside, underneath all the kind of superficial confidence, there was something not quite right. There was something ever so slightly wrong, something missing. I'm not completely sure I am doing the right thing. Jesus immediately jumps on this. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, please don't misunderstand this. Jesus isn't denying he's God, nor is he saying he's not good. I think what he means is, why are you walking up to a complete and utter stranger, just another human being, and calling him good? Where's your understanding of what the Bible teaches? For example, Psalm 130. O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Or Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. There is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. So what Jesus is actually saying is, look, your first problem is you aren't good. In fact, there is no human being who's good. Only God is good. One of the reasons why you're so uneasy, why you are so insecure, is because you've forgotten this basic truth. Listen, the reason why there are these kind of 
self-righteous people who are sure they're right with God, that everything will be fine in the end, who are still under the surface really upset and unhappy and insecure and down on themselves is because if you believe you can get right with God just by living a good life, I think that's how most people feel and always have, even today. If you believe you can get right with God just by living a good life, deep down inside, you're always going to be insecure. You'll always feel like, have I really done it well enough? Am I actually going to make the grade? It's like on the outside, it's the other people who look like their whole lives are together. But on the inside, they know better. On the inside, you know better. You, you know what goes on in your mind. You know the thoughts that you think. You know things about your life. You know things you have done that you, you don't want anybody else to know. And so, if you start to give in to this idea that, hey, I can get right with God by living a good life, it's going to create huge, huge insecurity in you. In the end, some of you will probably deal with it by effectively becoming Pharisees, being self-righteous, self-justifying, constantly talking about how good you are, showing off, boasting about your achievements, looking down on others, being a bigot one way to deal with the insecurity. The other way to deal with the insecurity is to kind of just be down on yourself, to constantly feel condemned, to feel guilty, to feel maybe a kind of low self-esteem. So maybe you come to Jesus, because on the outside you look like you've got it all together, but on the inside you know there's something wrong there's something that's still not quite right. Jesus says, your problem starts with bad theology. Your your problem starts with a wrong understanding of the gospel. Your problem starts with a wrong interpretation of what the Bible teaches. Your problem starts when you think people can be good enough. Nobody can be good enough. Nobody is good enough. And then Jesus launches right in. He says, verse 20, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Here it comes. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What's Jesus saying? Do you want eternal life? If you do, sell everything. Give everything to the poor. Then become one of my disciples and travel with me. Then you'll have eternal life. Now, not for the first time, we're shocked because Jesus has never said this to anybody else. When he's chatting with Nicodemus, when he's dealt with the woman at the well, when he deals with Mary, Martha, whoever, there is no other place where he says to people, if you want to be saved, 
Give away all your money to the poor. Nowhere else does it say that. You're going to see in a couple of weeks' time how when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, converts, he says, Lord, I'm going to start giving away 50% of my income to the poor. 50%, not all, 50%. What's Jesus say? Phenomenal, brilliant, great, well done. So why is he sticking it to this young man? doesn't do that to anybody else. Never makes anything like this demand anywhere else. Why is he doing it here? Tell you why. He's doing it because it's a brilliant strategy personally and theologically. First of all, personally. One of is something over in John's Gospel, in John 4, where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well. He talks to her about eternal life. He calls it living water. He says, look, I have a living water. I have a water that if you'll drink from it, you will never, ever, ever thirst again. She says, sir, I'd love to have that water. Give it to me, please. He says, okay, you, you want my living water? Go get your husband. I don't have a husband, she says. Right, he says, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Notice, no talk about money. Why is he pushing her on this? I'll tell you why. He's pushing her on this because this is her living water. This is the thing she has been looking to for hope, for meaning, for love, for security. It's men. Jesus is saying, you can't look to men to give you what only I can give you. Look, he doesn't bring up money to her because that wasn't her issue. He doesn't bring up women or sex or romance or anything like that to this man because that wasn't his issue. Do you see what he's doing? He's bringing up money because this is his living water. This is the thing he is looking for to give what ultimately only God can give. For him, money isn't just money. It's not just an instrument at all, something you can use for good. It's his security. It's his sense of, this is why I'm an important person. And so Jesus is going after it because it's the thing that's squeezing out God in this guy's life. It's brilliant personally. Second, it's brilliant theologically. Here's what Jesus is actually saying. He says, you want to have eternal life? Fine, obey the commandments, then you'll go to heaven. The young man replies, well, I have obeyed all the commandments. Jesus says, really? Okay, you want to play it that way? Let's start at the top. First commandment, have no other gods before me. Let's do a little thought experiment. If God is more important to you than anything else, then could you even conceive of giving all of your money away to the poor? I mean, think about it. That'd be wonderful for the poor, and it'd be even more wonderful for you, because you can come and live with me. And rather than relying on something that will ultimately never satisfy you, you can rely on me, and you will find me over and over and over again incredibly faithful. He's saying, Are you so determined to follow God that you are willing to give it all up for him? Of course the young man couldn't. Why couldn't he? Because money was more important to him than God. Effectively, it was his God. 
That's what it says in verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Because money wasn't just money to him. It's the equivalent of what men were to that woman at the well. It's really the most important thing in his life. Now, isn't that how many of us think? In the end, I want God in my life as long as it doesn't get in the way of this, whatever this is, because this is what really matters most to me. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's making a theological point. He's saying, nobody obeys the Ten Commandments. I mean, look at the first one. Have no other gods before me. You can't even get past the first one. Listen, God has created you. God sustains you every second. Therefore, you should live for him. You should give him everything. But there are all kinds of things that are potentially more important to you than God. Think about it. Do you, in all honesty, love God more than money? Do you love God more than your family or the thought of getting married and having a family? Do you love God more than your success or your career? Do you love God more than anything else in the world? I reckon if we're being honest, most of us can't even get past the first commandment. You see, we can't possibly inherit eternal life just through obeying the Ten Commandments. We desperately need a saviour. We desperately need rescuing. So you see why money has this kind of power over us. It can become what we rely on for our salvation. It can become what we trust, what we hope in, where we find our security. It can become a false saviour to us. It's the reason why it can have this terrible, terrible impact or hold over us. That's why I started by saying that I want to try and help you escape from its power over you. So how can you escape the power of money? How can you make sure the power of money isn't distorting your life? I'm going to give you four steps. Here's what they are. A, assume you're in denial. B, be looking to the rich young ruler. C, consider the reward. And D, develop a plan. A, B, C, D. B is slightly tenuous, but it works. Let's go through them. I'm going to be as practical as I can here. First of all, A, assume you're in denial. Notice in verse 24, it says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, there was that little gate in the wall of the city that was small and a camel, if it had to get through it, had to get off all of its luggage and go on its knees and crawl through nonsense that gate never existed it's just a try a way to try to make this verse more palatable for us the point is the clear point it is actually impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle and that is never ever ever going to happen then naturally speaking there is no chance whatsoever ever of a rich person being saved which sounds pretty bleak. 
until you realize that in reality all salvation is a miracle. It's impossible that any of us would be saved. As Paul puts it in Romans 3, for all have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. In which case, why is Jesus picking on the rich here? Why is he singling them out in particular? Here's the answer. I think the same thing that makes salvation impossible for all of us is made way, way worse by money. I'm telling you, wealth fuels self-reliance. Wealth covers over your need. Wealth tricks you into thinking that everything is okay. Wealth makes you feel invincible. Do you realize how many places the Bible talks about the fact that money makes you blind? It's like money blinds you to your need for salvation. Makes it incredibly difficult to trust God over and above everything else, which is why Jesus is being so blunt here. His words are intended to shock us. A bit like smelling salts. They're like a smack in the face. We should all realize we all desperately need to wake up to the fact that because we live in the Western world, we are all somewhat under the influence. So assume you're in denial about this. Assume you are somewhat under the influence. Assume that the amount of money you think you need is more than you really need. And assume the amount of money you think you can give away is less than what you really can give away. Assume it. That's the first step. Assume you're in denial. Secondly, B, be looking to the rich young ruler. Now, as far as we know, the rich young ruler doesn't get converted in this story. He goes away sad because he's not able to do what Jesus asks him to do. He he doesn't do the right thing. He's not a great example for us. So why should we look to him? If you look more carefully, I think you'll find there is a rich young ruler in this passage who did do the right thing. You see him. Jesus is in his early 30s here. If you're in your early 30s, that's still young. You get to your 40s, well, that's over the hill. But if you're in your early 30s, you're still young. Uh, Do you know where he came from? Jesus came from heaven. Jesus could quite legitimately say to this young man, hey, I'm a rich young ruler as well. Far richer than you could ever imagine. I mean, I had all the incomparable glory of heaven, but now I'm going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever gone before. I've already been stripped of my glory. Soon I'm going to be stripped of absolutely everything. I'm going to be stripped of my clothes. I'm going to be stripped of my dignity. I'm going to be stripped of my friends. I'm going to be stripped of my relationship with my father. I'm going to be crying out from the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to be stripped of my very life. I was a rich young ruler, and I have chosen to willingly give it all away. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We're not just spiritually poor, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have to 
beat on our breasts, a bit like that tax collector, and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the reason he can be merciful is because Jesus Christ took the punishment we deserve. He was drained of all riches so we could have his riches So we could have forgiveness, so we could have adoption into the very family of God. We could have the wealth that really makes you secure. Turn into Luke 18, verse 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now look, do you believe it? Do you believe it? If you can't believe it, if you don't believe it, if you're still struggling to believe it, I want you to know this is a safe place to bring your doubts, to bring your questions. Please, you are incredibly welcome here. Keep coming, keep searching, keep looking for the answer. If, on the other hand, you do believe this, I want you to look at it and rejoice in it until it drains all power out of money And money just becomes money to you. Something to spend, something to use for a a greater good. It's no longer your self-esteem. It's no longer your security. It's just money. And then you'll be able to be generous with it. Then you'll be freed, released to give it away. Secondly then, be looking to the real rich young ruler. Look at what he did for you. Thirdly, C, consider the reward. Verse 28, Peter said to Jesus, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Just to say, the reference to leaving your wife and kids isn't suggesting abandoning your family in case some of you are going there it's probably more about choosing to remain single like Jesus did or it's about accepting opportunities to serve God even if it means traveling without your family leaving brothers or sisters or parents again that's speaking being willing to follow God even if it means moving away from your family it's perhaps also speaking about the threat of being excluded or cut off from your family because of your decision to pursue first God's kingdom remember Peter the other disciples they had literally left everything to follow Jesus and Jesus is reassuring Peter and us that God sees every sacrifice we make for him and that in the end it will be worth it. God's reward will more than compensate. In this life, we're going to find Jesus gives us a level of peace and contentment and security and joy that nothing else in all of life can get anywhere close to giving us. And there's the promise of receiving infinitely more blessing in eternity. Put that way, every sacrifice we make for God is surely a wise investment. A, assume you're in denial. B, be looking to the rich young ruler. C, consider the reward. And finally, D, develop a plan. Reality is, if you don't intentionally sit down and develop a plan, nothing's going to change. 
might be challenged in the moment, but you're not going to do anything about it. In fact, you'll become more and more ensnared by money. It'll potentially stand in the way of you being a true, a genuine follower of Jesus. It'll definitely limit your experience of the blessing of God right now and in eternity. So for what it's worth, because I want to serve you as well as I can, here's a plan. Step one is simply to sit down and ask yourself, what percentage of my income am I giving away? How much am I giving to the church? How much am I giving to charity, to the poor, to people with needs outside of my immediate family? What percentage? Step two, if it's not 10%, Remember, 10% was the standard for the people of God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it it would have been the floor, the least you gave away. So if it's not 10%, ask yourself this. How can I really intentionally move towards 10% over the next 12 months? As much as you possibly can, push towards it. If you're already giving 10% or more, no time to be smug or kind of sit back in your chair and think, well, this doesn't affect me. See how far you can go beyond that. Step three is figure out what sacrifices you're going to make in order to get there. If you're thinking, well, I can afford just about to give this, but I'm not going to make any sacrifices, then I'd humbly suggest you're not giving enough. You're not giving sacrificially yet if it doesn't change how you live. Step four is decide where it's going to go, where you're going to give the money, and then hold yourself accountable. Have a way to make sure you follow through on this. Do you have the courage to do that? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But actually, your greatest need isn't courage. More than anything else, you need joy. You need to be happy enough to do that. You need to be relaxed enough to do that. You need to be at peace enough to do that. You need to have the security to do that. And that will only come by looking to the true rich young ruler who lost everything so we could gain everything.